First, I just want to say that last week's celebration of the life and legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King through the arts, clay, watercolors, dance, music, uh, mural making, sermon crafting, all of it was amazing. And I know that not all of you were here uh, last week, but I just wanted to, to reflect on how inspired I have felt all week as a result of that celebration. I'm always inspired by the words and the witness and the, the wisdom of Reverend Dr. King, but especially this time inspired by this community, the incredible gifts that are in this community that were shared so freely and so beautifully last week. Uh, gifts and passion and creativity and openness to new ideas and new experiences. And so as we begin a new year, I just want to um, share how grateful I am for the privilege of sharing this with all of you. Anybody else find yourself reflecting on that during the week? It was really beautiful, profound. So today we're kicking off this new worship series called The Questions of Jesus, inspired in part by this book, by the same title, The Questions of Jesus, written by John Deere. Anybody familiar with John Deere? Deere. Oh yeah, John Deere. I didn't even think about that. Uh, no, this is D-E-A-R. Nothing runs like a deer. That's right. So I wasn't familiar with him either. This is the only book that I've read that he's written, but he's written a whole bunch of books. And what I learned this week is that he's a Catholic priest and an author and a peace activist. He's been arrested 75 times for civil disobedience. And get this, get this. He was kicked out of the Jesuits for being disobedient to the order. I didn't know you could be kicked out of the, the Jesuits. But he's a great author and this is a, a really great book. So in this book, he is looking at the questions that Jesus asked, and it turns out Jesus asked a lot of questions. They're recorded all through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now don't worry, we're not going to explore all of them. This is just a four-week series, so this is just a little teaser. We're going to look at four of the questions that Jesus asked. But to, su to suffice it to say, there are lots to choose from. Anybody want to take a guess how many questions Jesus asked that are recorded in the Gospels? How many do you think? 50. 12. 12. 10,000. 10,000. That's quite a range. 82. Guess what? I'm not going to tell you. Yet. I will tell you. But I'm going to do what Jesus did, and that is to ask a question and then leave you hanging a little bit. I'll tell you in a minute. The foreword of this book is written by another great Catholic priest and author, Richard Rohr, who may be familiar to more of you, who talks about the human longing for answers. The human longing for answers. When we ask a question, we want an answer. When somebody asks us a question, we assume that they are looking for an answer, right? But it, we long for answers. Why do we long for answers? Secure, it gives us security, right? Confidence, um, closure, satisfaction. We, what's that? Comfort, Comfort yeah. We, we long for answers. We struggle a bit with questions when they are open-ended and just leave us hanging, right? We really do. 
But it turns out Jesus was big on questions and short on answers. Jesus was asked, now this is not the questions Jesus asked, this is the questions other people asked Jesus. According to this author, John Deere, um, Jesus was asked 183 questions recorded in the Gospels. People asked him 183 questions recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And how many of those questions do you think he answered? It's not quite none. Three. He was asked 183 questions and he answered three of them. And the, most of the rest of them, you know what he did? He responded to the question with a question because that's what Jesus was always doing. Now here's what Richard Rohr says about that. He says, This is totally surprising to people who have grown up assuming that the very job description of religion is to give people answers and to resolve people's dilemmas. Apparently this is not Jesus' understanding of the function of religion because he operates very differently. We assume the job description of religion is to give answers, and usually really simple answers, right? But apparently that's not how Jesus saw it. So why do you think Jesus asked so many questions? What do questions do? Somebody over here? I heard an answer. All right. What, what do questions do? Heather? They... Absolutely. They make people think for themselves and think critically. What else? What do questions do? They make people wonder. Yes? What else? Yeah, Mike. Yes. It opens up a conversation, right? Rather than just question, answer. It invites people to go deeper in conversation and dialogue. Yeah. Sure, yeah, the, the, gives the person receiving the question insight about the person asking the question. It makes me look at myself. Yeah, it makes us self-reflection, right? It, it makes us go inward. Yeah, so questions in open conversation, they invite curiosity and reflection, they encourage people to go deeper. Answers end with a period, which symbolizes finality, right? It's done. Questions end in question marks, right? Which imply openness. Openness of thought and heart and mind. Now, I do a lot of, um, of voice-to-text. Anybody else do this? You know, like if you want to send a text to someone, you're like, you like say it, and then you put send, and it goes out. But I'm also kind of a stickler about punctuation marks, because I used to be a high school English teacher. So my kids make fun of me. I'll be like, Sarah, comma, what time do you think you'll be home tonight, question mark? Like I'm always saying, did anybody else do this? <laughs> speak, speak the punctuation mark. So I'm not the only one. Okay, good. Question marks invite openness. So again, Richard Rohr, this is what he says. He says, easy answers instead of hard questions allow us to try to change others instead of allowing God to change us. Think about that for a minute. Easy answers instead of hard questions allow us to try to change others instead of allowing God to change us. Now think about it. If you think of the job description of religion to provide answers, what is it that people of faith often like to do with those answers? 
clobber people over the head with them, right? To change you, because you are doing something bad. But the questions, as Jeff said, invite self-reflection. Maybe Jesus asked a lot of questions because he wasn't so much interested in us trying to change other people as he was interested in us allowing God to work in us to move us and change us and transform us. Right? You see what I mean? Jesus asked a ton of questions. So how many questions did Jesus ask? Let's get back to that question that I asked. Here's the number. 307 questions recorded in the Gospels. Now I'm going to confess I did not go all the way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and make a list of them and count them myself. I am taking the word of this author who says there are 307 questions. But if you're suspicious... I urge you to feel free to go through your Bible this week and make a list of the questions and count them up for yourself. Which version? Whichever version you want. <laughs> Maybe there's a different number. Who knows? <laughs> so about these questions, John Deere says this. The Gospels are filled with stories, actions, parables, miracles, commandments, declarations, imperatives, and incidents from the dramatic life of Jesus, but they are also filled with questions. Jesus has a question for everyone he meets, for every occasion, for every experience, for every potential disciple. From his first encounter with his future disciples to his last words before his ascension, Jesus looks at his friends and invites them deeper into the mystery of God by means of a probing question. And then later he says, Jesus' persistent questioning shows how compassionate he is. He does not hit us over the head with answers that we cannot comprehend. Rather, he gently invites us to discover for ourselves the truth about God and himself. His questions reveal his great love for the human race. Now, I never thought about questions like this. Questions as an expression of love and compassion. But if you think about it, asking a question rather than giving someone a quick answer is a great expression of love and compassion. And that was the way of Jesus. So today's scripture passage that we're going to begin with, the first question in this series, comes from the Gospel according to John, the very first chapter. So this is very early on in John. And, you know, John does not have a birth narrative. There's no story of Jesus' birth. John jumps right into theology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the first person we meet is actually John the Baptist. Now, who's John the Baptist? What do you remember about him? The cousin of Jesus, right? He's the one who leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when the pregnant Mary came to visit her. Right? They were cousins. And remember that story? He leapt in Elizabeth's womb when Mary showed up. John the Baptist's ministry actually begins a little bit before Jesus. He's baptizing. He's teaching. And there are disciples, there are followers who are attracted to him. But what John says over and over is, it's great that you're following me, but I'm not the real one. Like the one you're really looking for, this is other guy who's coming after me who is way better than I am. He's the one you're looking for. I baptize you with water, but this guy is going to baptize you with forgiveness. And he's continually pointing ahead forward to Jesus. 
So when we pick up in verse 29, uh, John has some disciples and he's kind of introducing them to Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is really greater than me because he existed before me. And he goes on to talk about the baptism and how important Jesus was and, and pointing people not to, not to get too caught up in following him, but to look ahead to Jesus. And then jumping ahead a few verses, the next day John was standing again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus walking along, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and they followed Jesus. You get that? The two disciples heard what John said. They had been following John the Baptist. And when he pointed to Jesus, they began to do what? They followed Jesus. Now Jesus turned and saw them following and he asked, you ready? Here it is. The first question in John's gospel. Jesus turned and saw them following and he asked, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? They said, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? Okay, did you catch that? Jesus asked the question, what are you looking for? And they answered with a question. They pulled a Jesus, right? They're just meeting him for the first time. And they pulled a Jesus. What are you looking for? Where are you staying, teacher? He replied, come and see. So they went and saw where he was staying. And they remained with him that day. And then this extra little detail. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. Just in case you were wondering what time it was. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus asks, what are you looking for? Now, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I feel like I spend a lot of time looking for things. Lost things. Anybody else relate to this? What was the last thing that you lost that you spent time looking for? Your phone, okay? How many of you sometimes lose your phone? How many of you have that app, Find My Phone, that you can like use and it will beep at you? It's the greatest thing ever, Find My Phone. Okay, so phone, I heard keys, yeah. right? What else? Receipt that you need to submit or something, yep. What is it? A tablet, something to write on. Yeah, what else? iPad, lost the iPad. Your dignity. Oh, now you're, now you're going deeper. I'm afraid we all lose that one from time to time. Yeah, right. So Jeff went way down low. And I'm going to go, how many of you have lost your remote control recently, right? That's another one, right? Your glasses? Yes, glasses, another big one. So this week, I lost and spent a lot of time looking for the key to the mailbox, which is just outside our space here. It's a little, it's a single key on a key ring with a bright yellow plastic tag that says mailbox nine. And for four and a half years since we've been in this space, that key has sat on a certain shelf on my very neat desk, <laughs> in my very neat office. And whenever I get the mail, I'm really careful 
that I don't put the key in my pocket because I know I will take it home. I just keep it in my hand and I put it back on that shelf on my desk. But Tuesday, that key was nowhere to be found. I emptied the, those shelves on that desk. I looked through all the keys that were floating around like 10 times. I texted Sarah to see if she'd use the key. I texted Liz in our office to see if she'd use the key. Nobody had used the key. I emailed Don and I emailed our bookkeeper, Christina, because sometimes the two of them are waiting for a certain bill or a certain bank statement. Did you use the key to them? Nobody had the key. And it was really frustrating. You know that feeling when there's something, like I'm thinking, how long can I go without getting the bills out of the mailbox? <laughs> it's the only key we have. And finally, I just gave up. Until later that afternoon, when the mail carrier came in, and besides our mail, guess what else he had in his hand? The key. The key. Why do you think the mail carrier had the key to our mailbox? Because I left it in the mailbox on Friday. <laughs> I even went next door to Gateway Community Services because sometimes we get mail mixed up. And I remembered that one day last week we got some of their mail and I had delivered it to them. And I thought, I know I didn't do this, but maybe I gave them the key with the mail. No. I left it in the mailbox and he couldn't leave it there with our mail inside so he took the key home with him for the weekend and brought it back on Tuesday. I was so relieved to have that key. Now Jesus says, what are you looking for? And I'm pretty sure he is not referring to a mailbox key or an, a phone or a remote control or a pair of glasses. He's asking a much bigger question, isn't he? John the Baptist has pointed the way to, to Jesus, and these two disciples are following him. They're literally following him. They start walking after him. And Jesus turns around, and he sees them, and he looks them in, in the eye, and he asks, What are you looking for? Now, the problem with written text is that we don't have the benefit of tone of voice. There are many ways you could say that, and they would have very different meanings, right? Like you could say, what are you looking for? Right? What are you looking for? Right? That's different. But I don't think that's how Jesus said it. Right? What do you, how do you think Jesus said it? In what kind of tone of voice? Compassionate? Interested? Enticeful. That's a good word. He's really taking an interest in them, right? He's noticing them. He's paying attention to them. He's curious about them. He's wondering about them. He shows them loving kindness. And when he asks that question, what are you looking for? What do you think he means? It's kind of an existential question, isn't it? Like, what do you want? What are you seeking? What is your deepest longing? That's the kind of thing I'm imagining that he's asking. What will satisfy your deepest desire? These disciples have been following John the Baptist, and very quickly they start to follow Jesus. So there's something more that they're looking for, right? And he's wondering what that is. He inquires about their hopes and their dreams. Now, the rabbis don't know how to answer, so they respond with that question, where are you staying? And I'm wondering 
if actually they're asking a deeper question too. Not like, what's your current address, Jesus? Right? But more like, what would it be like to abide with you? You know, that's a deeper question. Can we come along? It's an invitation and a request. And Jesus says, come and see. And they do. And they go to the place where he's staying and they continue on as Jesus' disciples. It's an interesting question that Jesus asks. What are you looking for? And I think it's a question that Jesus asks of all of us. What are you looking for? If Jesus were to show up today and ask you that question, look you in the eye, take an interest in you, how would you answer that question? What are you looking for? Hmm? You. you. Peace. Community. Community. Freedom. Freedom. Anybody looking for hope? Yeah. yeah. Anybody looking for acceptance? Anybody looking for belonging? Understanding. Understanding. Anybody looking for love? For a life that matters, for purpose, for meaning. Frederick Beekner, who's a Presbyterian minister and author, <clears throat> says this. Oops, no, not yet. He didn't say that yet. <laughs> um, Sarah and I and the girls went to the Women's March 2.0 in Augusta yesterday. There were a dozen or so amazing speakers. And we marched, and it was inspiring. And I wanted to share with you a little clip from one of the speakers, and this is Fatuma Hussein, who is a Muslim Somali woman who came as a resettled refugee, first to Georgia, and then eventually to Maine, in 1993. And she's sharing a little bit of her story, and I wanted to share with you because I want to invite you to listen through the lens of Jesus' question, what are you looking for? Because what I think is that most of us are looking for pretty much the same things. So listen to Fatuma Hussein, hear what she has to say. Maine is a good place. It's a great place to live. It's a good place because someone like me got a chance. I got resettled as a refugee in 1993 in Atlanta, Georgia. And when I heard about Maine in early 2000, on a very winter day, I arrived in Maine February 4th of 2001. When I came to Maine, I had the utmost respect for Mainers because I couldn't smell racism in the air versus where I came from, which was South. I came from a place where everything was based on your skin color. And for me, I did not understand what that was. So I came to Maine, and even if people had different opinions about you, they kept it to themselves, and I appreciated that. And because of that, I found my right footing, and here I am today with you. Yes. 
am. I, I stand in front of you speaking for many mothers who don't have voices. You see, people who come from, you know, isolated communities, underserved communities, marginalized communities, they're often in the shadows. Their voices are not heard. They don't come to places like this. They struggle a lot. They don't have access to services. They try to make the best they can to provide a good foundation for their children. We cannot threaten that. We as Mainers have to rise above that and have to say all communities count. And that when all of our communities work together, young, old, women, men, children, everybody, when we work together and we become the voice for people who don't have voices, then we thrive. <laughs> Today, what I say is we all count. All of our voices count. We need to really look at your neighbor, knock on their door, look who's in their community, look at your schools, look at the friends of your children, and make sure that every community has a voice. Make sure that every community counts, because I am tired of trying to say, to, to try to prove myself all the time. How much more do I have to do? I have eight children. I have grown the population of the state of Maine. My daughter goes to Georgetown and my other daughter goes to Swarthmore. What else can I do? I, I employ, well, I don't know, 11, 12 people. We provide the economy of the state of Maine. What else do I need to do to prove who I am? What else do I need to prove that Muslim women are not, and communities from the, the Muslim community are not terrorists? We don't have terrorism in us. We, we are just like you. Like well, every morning we want to get up and go to work, go to school, and we are just simple people who need peace. <laughs> Inspiring, right? So what did you hear in there? What are you looking for? A neighbor. A neighbor. Safety. Safety. Acceptance. Acceptance. Equality. Equality. Support. Support. Peace. Peace. A voice. A chance. A chance. I heard, when I heard her, when I heard her speak yesterday, the thing that kept haunting me, and it haunted me when I heard that, was at the very beginning. And she said she didn't feel racism in the air. Right. She appreciated people. They had such things. They, they kept them to themselves. Yeah. And I find that to be humbling and what happened. But it's almost like, almost like I'm yearning for that moment again right. because we, we right. are not there. We're not there anymore. And, and yet, <clears throat> ripping off the bandage as this past year, right. her words resonate on both fronts. Mm -hmm. Both on, she found a community because of this. Right. She faces this, if you will. Yeah. But she stirs a community because of her example right. and her words. Right. Really, it was one of the more challenging speeches because of that Absolutely. incredible slap. But yeah. Cool. But important. Yeah. Do you hear what I mean, though, about how we're, it, what I hear is that we are all searching for the same things. We're all 
looking for the same things. So this is where Frederick Buechner comes in. He says, compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live in somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can really never, never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Right? Like you can never find what it is you are looking for until all of us find it together. Right? That sense of solidarity and community. Or as Thomas, or as Thomas Merton said, compassion is the keen awareness of the interdependence of all things. It's interesting in the English language, the word you, the second person, is the same whether it's singular or plural. Now, I know this is not true in other languages, that there's different words for you singular and you plural. But in English, when we say you, we don't know if you're talking about you, Jonathan, or you, Eileen, or if you're talking about you, all of us together. Unless you're from the South and you use that great invention which we should all adopt, y'all, which is the plural you, right? Which most of us don't have. And I like this because when we read this in English and Jesus says, what are you looking for? It means both what are you individually looking for and what are you collectively, all of us together, looking for. Because I think they are the same. What you and are looking for ultimately and what all of us are looking for together. Jesus never invites us on a self-centered journey. Jesus doesn't invite us on a self-centered journey. Jesus invites us on a journey together. There can never really be peace and joy for me until there's peace and joy finally for you also. And so Jesus responds, come and see, which is an invitation to follow. And they do. And it's a journey not of simple answers, but of deep questions that challenge us and push us and transform us. So we're going to continue this conversation in the next couple of weeks. Um, I just want to end with this one great quote from German language poet Rainer Maria Rilke, who says this, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books, that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will find them gradually without noticing it, and live along some distant day into the answer. Amen.